developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Pretty Much Pop Radio coming at you asynchronously from multiple locations. The weather today is whatever it happens to be in your location, and the traffic is presumably still flowing at some rate. Today we're talking about the differences between podcasting and radio, apart from the obvious bits I've been skillfully satirizing here. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer with a face made for podcasting. I'm Erica Spires, and I always figured I'd be able to use my Delilah voice one day, but I realized that falling into podcasting, I just use my own little annoying voice. Hi, I'm Jason Bentley. I'm your guest, and I'm going to do my best job at being a podcasting industry expert and pundit today. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm still stuck in a Groundhog Day time loop from our last show. Talk to you next week, everyone. And our other co-host, Brian, is out today. So you'll get extra space. We can just suck up all the air. That, he, that he's left behind. Forget that guy. <laughs> Jason, we got your press release that you've started a new podcast, The Backstory, and we had a little chat as to what would be a good topic for you. And since you come out of radio and seem to know a lot about, well, at least that world and now both worlds, tell a little about your background in radio, the, the variety of things that you've done before we get going here. Well, I started in radio at college in the late 80s, which sounds like an eternity ago. I guess it was. And my fascination with the medium goes back even farther. An early teen, I had a makeshift pretend radio station in my bedroom and I just loved radio. I always wanted to be in that world, probably because it was sort of theater of the imagination to a certain extent. I liked it more than music videos, which really set a template and kind of informed a certain direction. Radio just let you dream and imagine. And I like that. I really got switched on to NPR, which was always on in my home growing up. But they were always just more progressive in their approach to radio and going back to this idea of theater of the imagination. I got introduced to some producers out here in LA, one in particular named Joe Frank, who was doing radio dramas that were so bizarre and darkly comic and really interesting. If anyone wants to check out Joe Frank, his archive, he's passed away, unfortunately, but his archive is online. I think just joefrank.com, something like that. Anyway, brilliant playwright, but plays for radio. So that's my background. The backstory, which I'm very excited about these days, is my first foray into podcasting, which is kind of a whole new world. I had been a holdout, really not getting into podcasting so much. I understand the attraction there and the growth, and it just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think it's a billion-dollar industry as of 2020. So a lot of activity there. For me, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. I mean, they're both fruits, but they serve different purposes in our appetite for entertainment and information. To me, it's a reflection of people's interest in on-demand content and the convenience of that. And technology is allowed for these things. But I still love radio. I love the tune-in effect. I love that, uh, what we used to call a driveway moment at KCRW, where you've arrived at your destination, but you can't get out of the car because the story is so good. And you just have to be there. You have to hear it. That, to me, is part of the magic of radio. 
I think we all know that radio is in a sort of a stable decline, a steady decline. But I do think a lot of the reports of radio's demise have been exaggerated. And especially here in Los Angeles, it's still a very healthy market. We give a, a few priors. Erica, I know that as a stage performer, she's, she's a Broadway person. You're mostly in front of people, but I assume as a musician, radio played some kind of formative influence. Oh my gosh, yes. Well, we didn't have a lot of theater growing up. I grew up in a really small town and my parents started a theater company. So if there was theater, we were in it, right? So there wasn't a lot of influence to, to watch it as much. So radio played a huge part. And I think we find through the years more and more how much sound influences people's lives in so many different ways from that basic classical baby, like let's play them Mozart, see if they get smarter, all the way to people with dementia and Alzheimer's who actually remember music and words in a way that feels absolutely magical. So yeah, I think I have stronger memories tied to radio as a child than I do to a lot of the TV shows that I watch. Maybe you're right, which I hadn't thought of, Jason, is it creates a space for your mind to fill in the rest of the blanks when you're just hearing it. I am about in the same generation as Jason, and radio was very important to me. Michael Jackson's Thriller was flying off the shelves when I was like 11, and then as a musician, became a music snob pretty quickly. By, by the time I was in high school, it's, no, you got to find the stuff yourself. You got to seek it out. Radio is for the sheep. And so it's just something to be tolerated if it was in the car and immediately switch if there was a commercial. Of course, NPR opens up a different and also the college station. I went to the college station intending to maybe try to be an on-air personality when it became clear to me that you could just go there and listen to any of their records and tape them for home use. Like that was about the extent of my actual participation with the radio station. And so it was a new thing then getting into podcasting. And now half the podcasts call themselves radio and half the radio conglomerates have come out with podcasting versions of themselves. And in fact, are taking over the podcasting market, NPR podcasts. My own son will just listen to NPR podcasts rather than mine. Well, many of the successful podcasts from NPR really have a history as a traditional radio show. I think the great advantage that legacy media has, radio has, is they have the foundational infrastructure to survive. They're not going to go away overnight. Whereas podcasting was developed first as, as kind of a wild west and unregulated and niche format. Sometimes I do feel like with so many podcasts out there that they're all niche. <laughs> you know, you have to have this really specialized interest. And the thing that's been refined with radio through programming is it's a coordinated effort at marketing, at controlling an idea or an identity of a station. I find it interesting that these days at big commercial radio stations, they don't use the terminology program director. They call it brand manager at these large conglomerates like Intercom and, and iHeart. They'll say, you know, <laughs> it's the K-Rock brand manager. And that speaks to the requirement of this 360 degree worldview that it's not only a radio, a terrestrial radio signal, but it's everything. It, it's bringing it to the digital space and bringing it to the streets. And that's also something really powerful with radio. Since radio is typically live, local, and linear in terms of, well, live, you know, sort of you're listening to it, a chronological experience. There's a great advantage in harnessing that power of just being meaningful in your community. 
And I just don't see that yet. Maybe there are things that I'm not appreciating in the podcast world, but there's two sides to it. With podcasting, the, the exciting thing about coming into the backstory, that podcast is that all of a sudden I realized how liberating it was to not have a time limitation, you know, being able to sort of be global in our view. We had guests from all over and not necessarily be localized. And so there's an upside to that for sure. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, radio's great strength and advantage is still really being a localized experience. Absolutely. My parents had a friend who is still a radio personality. He was one of the big ones, you know, and we grew up like, let's listen to him, his morning show. And I think that's something that in one instance, it's probably liberating as a podcast. Yes, you have ads and yes, you're serving that to a certain point. But in radio, I wonder how much of that feels like you have to do that to support your radio station, unless you're NPR and then you're doing drives. It's nice when you can serve your local brands, right? And your local ads and play those. But as things get bigger and we get into Clear Channel taking over and then, you know, iHeart, how much do you think that ended up changing the game for radio? And did that, in fact, maybe push people towards wanting to go to a podcast route? where they could have feel like maybe they could have more freedom, even if it's not true necessarily. You know, advertising is ubiquitous. I mean, we, we do our best to avoid it. You fast forward, you, you know, you pre-record shows and fast forward, but they're going to get you. They're going to keep trying. It's that classic tension. So I'm not sure that advertising has forced a migration to podcasts because they're not going to escape it there. But I do think that there's a tremendous reward in serving your sponsor and having advertising that makes sense for your audience and isn't a total disconnect. But also it's just being part of these artistic voices and careers, even at a commercial station. To be a part of a breaking artist's trajectory is just really rewarding. Seeing that you had a little part to do with that process, a small link in the chain. And there's something really powerful about having that part of the story, taking ownership. We would always sort of try to hold on to artists as long as we could at KCRW and their evolution, sort of be part of that story as long as we could. There are many that would then eventually take flight and sort of be out of our solar system, like a, an Adele is a good example. Adele's very first live radio sessions in the States were at KCRW. Now she's such a massive artist that it's kind of in poor taste for us to even play Adele. You know, we can't play it in good conscience because it's like this artist is just too big. But anyway, it speaks to the role that independent radio certainly plays in supporting careers. And that's powerful and it's tremendously rewarding for people who are involved. Yeah, I think the dismissive things that immediately jumped to mind about radio is about these massive corporations or even when they weren't massive corporations. I remember when I was a kid calling in with a request of something that I'd seen on VH1 or something. And they didn't know what I was talking about on the Top 40 station because it wasn't on that extremely narrow playlist that they had to play. And the idea was, you know, why even have DJs? These are just people with nice voices who are told exactly what to do, what they can play, what they're promoting, that it was a very restrictive environment. But what you're talking about, whether it's the indie stations or NPR, is, you know, a purposeful counterpoint to that. I mean, there's a big difference between commercial radio, which is sort of like fast food, you know, drive through McDonald's versus fine dining where you're going to seek it out. You know, you want to experience that Michelin star meal. There's audience for both. But 
podcasting, at least for me, has not shown the same potential to make a difference for people on the ground and for artists in a real way. As much as it's easy to, you know, discount the narrow focus of radio format programming, there's a method to it. It's that these songs, not only the research and the effort that they've put into devising this format and this playlist, but also knowing the marketing plans of labels, you know, how much of a push is happening. They also survey all kinds of things, including, you know, just innocent, inspired young people who love music. I mean, they're constantly listening to those voices to sort of shape their playlist to their advantage. So it's not all nefarious, you know, it's just very calculated and they've sort of refined their point. Certainly more than what my ear likes. Certainly I don't listen to pop radio. I want to be challenged. I want to be turned on. We have a DJ at KCRW, Henry Rollins, who's a very credible punk rock sort of icon. I don't normally like what he plays, but he makes such a good pitch for why I should at least just listen to it. He's so passionate about it that I'm like, all right play it. I want to hear this, you know, bring it on. And I just, I love that. I love that interaction. And that's something that can kind of only happen with the guiding hand, the live radio, old school DJ. It just doesn't work. At least I haven't found it in the music streaming space or the podcast space. And obviously podcasts have huge limitations with playing music. So that's a major issue as well. How do you compare that then to something like All Songs Considered? Because I feel like that's also a very curated list. And sometimes they'll play a full song. Sometimes they just play you a sample. But they actually try to get you to to learn about bands you otherwise may not know about. No, that's a good one. And it's also a very popular podcast. I'm not a music attorney, so I don't know what the latest is. Maybe you guys know about you know where things stand with playing music freely on podcasts. Do you have to license it in the sense of, you know, of a sync to picture. I certainly should know, given that one of my podcasts is a music podcast on which I regularly play songs. And this was something that I was worried about and was consulting early on, like, I don't know if I can have this guest or we can play this song unless we can formally get the rights. And I guess it's small potatoes enough. You know, I'm sure it just matters where the money is. If there's enough eyes on it, if there's enough downloads, then folks are going to start caring. My policy right now has been, I obviously have the permission of the person involved. I'm talking to them about the song. So yes, we can play the song. And there's only been, you know, when we post things to YouTube, they have their own sort of auto-matching things that no human beings are even involved with. (laughs) But if it duplicates anything, they'll say, this is a copyright claim. You can't make ad money on this YouTube. That's not a big part of my business, so I don't care. But I will challenge it, you know, especially even my own songs (laughs) that I'll put on there because they've been introduced (laughs) in the system through CD Baby or something prior. They'll detect as duplicates. So far, I haven't had that problem with Spotify at all, even though the podcast gets farmed out to Spotify, who, of course, are very diligent about their own streaming and things. So, you know, for sure, Spotify is not recognizing that I have these songs in my podcast and doing anything about that. I'm sure there are licenses available. Your position is it's easier to ask uh, forgiveness than it is uh, permission. And until you get a cease and desist, you're just, you're cool. Yes, I'm sure that these things will be worked out just like we had all these issues with streaming TV at first and the actors aren't getting paid and the directors aren't getting paid. And, you know, whenever we introduce a new technology, we don't know how to pay people. And then as, you know, actual money is enough ears and eyes go to this thing, we figure it out and hopefully do it in a fair way. 
Yeah. I mean, I had an interesting experience over the past year as I launched a label and I put a single out. And so I was able to see the other side of it going from being a radio promoter on air to being a label owner and hiring promoters to get the music out there. And the greatest revenue came from satellite radio. Even though there was a lot of activity on the streamers like Spotify, for instance, Spotify was mostly a lot of bells and whistles where they give you these fun tools to track the progress and the streaming around the world. And it feels like there's a lot of activity. But when it comes down to dollars and cents, it was more legacy media that was paying. And hey, I appreciated it. You know, I was able to make a few thousand dollars off of uh, releasing the single. Mm hmm. Yes, of course, there are just notorious problems with streaming media not paying artists enough. And that is something that podcasts did not introduce. So let's just say we can solve that hopefully all in one swoop as these various lawsuits and deliberations continue. You know, it's, a, it's an important conversation, though. And I think bringing it up in a podcast format is for any listeners out there who who do wonder what's OK and what's not. It's a good conversation to have. So people have some understanding of how difficult it is to pay artists appropriately, pay promoters. And even from my perspective, I'm an actor and a musician, right? So sometimes I have to deal with various unions and those unions don't even know how to properly handle it because whether or not they're talking to each other or they're each setting their own rules and where do you land on that? And sometimes as an artist, you can feel so stifled because it's like, well, I feel like I can't do anything because what if I don't get the permission from this or that? So yeah, I think it's a fine line. It's like you want to promote these artists. You want people to be able to be creative. You want people to be paid. But there are so many gray areas in terms of how to do that equitably and still get it out there. Yeah. And technology is going to continue to challenge that, I think. Yeah. It's funny that Napster was the first big one. I remember doing that, right? And even before that, as a child, my eldest brother, who's like four and a half years older than me, and he would just sit at the radio listening to Casey Kasem and just recording the whole thing, right? Recording all of the songs off of that list. And we would listen to them the rest of the week because like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. It didn't even hit me as a child. Like, oh, we need to actually go out and buy those tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, of course, as a person who makes my living from performing, that's something I very much am aware of now is I want to pay something for these things. <laughs> Definitely. And I'm happy to do it through ads. You know, I'll do it through whatever I need to. But, you know, there is an importance for people getting paid. But you don't feel the sense of conscience of, I realize that in this commercial radio station that I've been enjoying, that the ads make it possible for me to continue to listen. So I should diligently listen to these ads. Like I remember it being kind of a surprising thing with Howard Stern saying, hey, I want you to actually pay attention to what these ads are and contact these people and say that you are buying their product because you heard it on the Howard Stern show. No, of course you change the station when there's an ad and nothing any DJ like that is going to say is going to, you know, convince me otherwise, even though I recognize, you know, it seems like that advertising is just, I think this is something Brian, our missing co-host once said to me that it is sort of a fool's game on the advertiser. It allows all this stuff to happen and people gladly ignore it, but enough of it seeps through that they think it's worth their while. So they keep throwing money at it and they don't have any good way to measure whether it actually makes a difference. Of course, with podcasts, that's a different thing because you have your specialized code and we can actually see. And if only five people came and, and you got an audible description because of your ad. Yeah. It's a lot like you mentioned earlier, just sort of follow the money. You know, Mark, you mentioned until something really starts to generate some dollars, nobody really pays attention. But 
that seems to be happening very quickly with podcasts. So uh, all of a sudden, everyone is looking for their piece. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder if the freedom that we identify with podcasting, so I think you're in a good position to talk about this, that if you were on a commercial radio or even to a lesser extent on NPR or something, that there's money behind it. You have executives giving you guidelines. You can't just take the discussion anywhere. The brand needs to be managed <laughs> to various degrees. And the more money that goes at a podcast, you would think the more similar pressure there would be of that sort. However, podcast ownership may be more centralized. So when Conan O'Brien does his own podcast, it's probably owned by him and you know his little company that he's in charge of. And so I'm not sure. I'm just trying to wonder if what we see as the advantage of podcasting might go away as the money flows in. You know, there'll be just as much control exerted over podcasters as they are currently over DJs. That's a good point. Yeah, it's probably just the evolution of things. I've been amazed, though, at how some of these very, very popular podcasts, like some of the talk podcasts, like Joe Rogan's podcast, they're like three hours long. <laughs> What's going on here? I'm sure he doesn't need to be that long to make that amount of money, but I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> this is insanity. I, I remember the pressure self-imposed at radio just to keep an interview going. You know, even with interviewing Bjork or Tom York or somebody like that, I would still be like at seven minutes, I'd be like, okay, let's come on, Bjork, let's move this along. <laughs> <laughs> so three hours is stunning. But I think to your point, we will see that trend of things kind of closing in on these sort of full-on freedoms that <laughs> people are enjoying in podcast medium. Okay, jumping back into a podcast I'm not participating in, I'd like to talk to you about Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks and entertainment. If you're like me, you're not just a reader, but a rereader. I'm getting back into Agatha Christie, most of which I read when I was younger. And audiobooks from Audible are a great way to experience an old favorite in a new way. Next on my list is Christie's And Then There Were None, read by Dan Stevens, star of Downton Abbey, Beauty and the Beast, and Legion. In fact, Pretty Much Pop will be doing an Agatha Christie episode this fall when Death on the Nile comes out, and director and star Kenneth Branagh also narrates the Audible audiobook. I'm really excited to listen to this one, too. Of course, Audible is more than just the classics. You can use your monthly credit on bestsellers, self-help books, memoirs, management, you name it. And your membership gets you access to the Audible Plus catalog as well. No credits needed to download and stream thousands and thousands of audiobooks, fitness and sleep tracks, and other programming. Now is the best time to try Audible, because with their President's Day event, you're getting one of their best offers of the year, only $9.95 a month for your first six months. For a limited time, in addition to accessing one title from Audible's premium selection, you can download and stream thousands of all-you-can-listen audiobooks, originals, and podcasts for less than the regular membership. Visit audible.com slash pretty or text pretty to 500-500. That's P-R-E-T-T-Y to 500-500. I want to talk about something that's important and a very useful tool. She's Birdie, a personal safety alarm. Years ago, I was given pepper spray from my uncle. I carried it around whenever I remembered to, but it wasn't convenient, and I realized that if I were to use it, I was probably going to spray myself and anybody else around me. I wondered for years what to use to effectively protect myself. Well, I don't have to wonder anymore, because now I have She's Birdie. When you activate your birdie with a quick pull, a 130 decibel siren will sound. That's as loud as a jet engine flying 100 feet above. There's also a flashing strobe light. And birdie has a solid brass keychain, so you don't have to fumble around for it in your bag. 
Batteries will last for 40 minutes when the alarm is activated, and they can be replaced when needed. It's even TSA approved, so bring it with you everywhere you go. She's Birdie draws attention. It's not a danger to the user, it's easy to use, and it has a sleek and small design. Don't be like me and take years to figure out how to protect yourself. Take advantage of She's Birdie now. Join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash pretty. Go to She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash pretty for 15% off your first purchase. That's she's birdie.com slash pretty. Now let's get back to the show. So what was it that excited you about starting this podcast? Was it your idea? Was it someone else's? Has this been a project you've had in mind for a while? Conversation around the backstory was Soho House began a few years ago, actually very casual conversations. And then the pandemic ushered in production. I think that you know, since they have their houses, um, their actual locations were closed, they were looking for other ways to stay connected with their membership. And so with all the activity around podcasting, it was a natural. I think they looked at my background, interviewing a lot of different people, being considered, you know, highly regarded as a tastemaker. So I had a skill set that could apply here. And so I love the affiliation. I had been a member at Soho House uh, West Hollywood since they started, so more than 10 years. And I knew I couldn't really do it alone. You know, I thought the resources that they brought along with the production company 101 Studios, the resources they brought in booking and publicity and everything, I mean, just staff wasn't something that I was prepared to manage. So it was just a golden opportunity. But then also it kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone, which I felt was a healthy way to grow. This podcast isn't really about music. And, you know, I'd been music director at KCRW for a decade. That was my bread and butter. So I saw it as an interesting challenge and just a way to do something different. And leaving KCRW a little over a year ago, that's what I wanted was that I wanted to challenge myself to do and try other things. I just came to a point at KCRW where I'd just done that. I did it. I did it to death. <laughs> and I had to feel like I could try something else. So this opportunity came along and it's been great. With each guest that we have, I just completely dive in and immerse myself in their story and what they're up to and really just try and get into their headspace. And it's been cool. Do you find that your interview skills and your hosting skills in general have had to change at all from radio to a podcasting medium? Yeah, I mean, it's more challenging since there isn't necessarily a time limit. And I do want to continue to moderate the conversation. Also, the way that it was originally envisioned with Soho House was in person. This is pre-pandemic. And so it was meant to be just like meeting for lunch or drinks at Soho House. So that sort of relaxed demeanor was something I had to try to adjust to. And it's also not made any easier with the intrinsic awkwardness of these online chats. You don't have the advantage of seeing, you know, people's movements or gestures or demeanor, like body language is, is actually really important in conversation. So yeah, it's been an adjustment, but hey, I'm not the only one who's had to adjust to uh, life like this. 
I'm so grateful that we have video conferencing as part of this because even though we don't release it that way, oh my gosh, we've had a few guests who haven't had their video working for whatever reason. And it just like, go, nope, go ahead. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's, yeah, that's why the audio editing is so necessary in this form. But clearly, radio folks would do phone interviews on a regular basis. And that's what a lot of the older artists that I talk to on my music podcast they would rather do that. I just call them by phone. And having started podcasting 10 years ago, even with a group like this, with four people having a discussion, we had no video for at least the first seven years. I don't, I don't know exactly when we made the switch, but it's a luxury. And there's some podcasters, I remember hearing Sam Harris say that he purposefully wants to have the discussions with no video because this is what people are hearing. He doesn't want to have extra inside information between the people on the call that the folks out there in the world are not going to get, that you don't want to, I don't know. I think people are used to in podcasting, overhearing a conversation and filling in the gaps of what the gestures are, and we should take what gifts are available to us as people actually having the conversation. I do think that the most interesting potential in podcasting is the immersive experience. And obviously some of the most popular podcasts, like things like Serial and whatnot, are are these written, fictionalized stories. I really think that's exciting. And that's something I'd like to get into more so that it isn't necessarily your traditional interview or conversation even, but it sort of just takes you to a place. And going back to my earlier comments about my inspirations with the artist Joe Frank, that's what he did for me is he really made me feel like I had somehow crossed wires and was eavesdropping on a conversation I should not be listening to. And that sort of feeling excitement, that lean in kind of feeling is just magic. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for that in podcasting. And that's also why a lot of people are doing deals around the further potential of any given intellectual property. Can they turn this into a TV show? (laughs) You know, it's been interesting to see um, Song Exploder as an example of this, which started as an audio podcast and then migrated to Netflix. And to see how they bring that to life in the visual medium has been pretty interesting. I don't know how successful it is for me, to be honest with you, but it's a good case study. I wonder if maybe the revolution that is podcasting happened before there were podcasts, that the idea of pre-recording content on the radio, so many of those NPR stories, those highly scripted, edited, we're putting together a whole news expose. It's clear a lot of the power of those things, and which is now being copied by some podcasts, that was already a technology that was out there. It was just a matter of if you weren't tuning in that evening, or maybe when it was rebroadcast next week or something, then it was lost. And so, of course, if that's your approach to recording radio, then yes, you should be releasing this also as a podcast because this is evergreen material in many cases, you know, especially if you're talking to a musician or something as opposed to a cutting edge news story. What's your sort of experience with that in terms of everything you've done has been live? Well, there's sort of shades of live. (laughs) 13 seconds from live, so you can swear. (laughs) The sort of stylistic approach, the techniques have evolved at radio. And now it is the norm listening to the NPR news magazines every day. They'll begin a piece with some sort of establishing soundscape. They do trigger that immersive quality as the norm now. It's really come a long way. And I think it's terrific. It's much more engaging because your mind just starts to invest itself in like, oh, what am I listening to? Oh, that's a train passing by? or And so it's brilliant. And I think, yeah, it's certainly informing techniques and ways to approach podcasting as well. 
it's really interesting the tension between radio and podcasting, especially with NPR. I don't know if you guys were following the controversy around the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which is hugely popular, but it was just dumped by a few NPR stations, including KCRW, because of some controversy about the integrity of their reporting on a a series called Caliphate. Apparently, the central figure in this 12-part series on ISIS was totally lying. Like, he's just making up his stories. He was saying that he was a uh, ISIS soldier and embedded. And anyway, he made it up. But a lot of NPR stations, a trade group wrote a letter, a stern letter to the New York Times, and then the, the show got dumped. And I think the point that they're trying to make is, hey, we're here in our newsrooms, working our butts off, making sure integrity is number one, doing our homework. And here you guys are just fabricating stories in the interest of building audience and gaining acclaim in the podcast space. So it just became kind of an example for them to point the finger and say, hey, we're still living by these standards (laughs) that you guys aren't abiding by. And so it was kind of an interesting example of that rub between these worlds where I think podcasts desire for audience and to meet the hype and the expectations in the industry are at the expense of some of these standards in the newsroom. That's very interesting. The fact that The Daily even did caliphate was different for them, right? They're normally, the way I was introduced to The Daily a few years ago is like, here's basically 20 minutes worth of what you need to know in the world today. Exactly. Probably just reading their newspaper aloud. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was done very well. But for me, the reason I really liked The Daily is because it felt very consumable. And if I didn't want to be pressed to watch 24-hour news networks that were repeating a lot of the same information, it was a bite-sized version. And then they did this special series, which was fascinating, but it was much more like listening to a This American Life episode or something. Right. In that case, it's not even something they needed to do, unless maybe they were, like you said, to build a broader audience than The Daily normally had. Yeah. And I mean, there may be this gravitational pull to be as popular as Serial was, you know, but, you know, it's sort of the meter between being true to your standards as a journalist versus elaborating on a story and putting yourself in a position where the integrity of the story might be at risk because you really haven't vetted the people that you're talking to. Oh, that person is really colorful and interesting. What a character. We've really hit the jackpot with this person getting kind of swept up in that because of the hype around podcasting and trying to create notoriety. I'm sure there's a huge pressure in the signal to noise ratio out there. I mean, how many podcasts are out there? Two million? Millions? I mean, there's a lot. I know I feel that way with uh, the backstory is just how do you get noticed in all of this? <laughs> well, having the big time celebrities on as you, as you were kicking off, we <laughs> yeah. tried to do that. We had Lucy Lawless. We had some for the first few episodes and we found it actually didn't matter. Actually, this was a thing with our long running philosophy podcast as well, is that we would get a couple celebrities, Lucy Lawless, we had Paul Provenza, we had a couple other people, Dr. Drew. And those actually don't get downloaded any more than any of the other episodes. It's, it's bizarre. But perhaps if you're coupling that appearance with the right connections at Apple so that, you know, you have a giant picture of Dr. Drew or whatever on the day that your episode comes out, then I'm sure there are PR ways of pulling this stuff off. But merely drawing on the celebrity 
cachet is not enough. There's just too much that even the people that you have, even Kristen Bell has probably appeared on lots of podcasts and only the most diehard Kristen Bell fans are going to track down them all. Well, Mark, to that point exactly with Kristen Bell, I had her on with uh, an author, an academic named Adam Grant. And we had this great deep dive conversation. I read a couple of Adam Grant's books ahead of time. You know, it was really interesting and formed this like 45 minute conversation. And there's one small comment that Kristen Bell made about her relationship with her husband. One sentence, which blew up and was relayed to hundreds of outlets across the country. Outlets that I never would have dreamed would be covering the backstory, like, you know, People Magazine and Us Weekly. And it was so crazy to witness that, that they really weren't interested in the substance that we worked so hard at really peeling the layers back in this conversation, all the preparation. And it really just came down to that one comment she made. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, she might as well have tweeted it if that's the thing that they're interested in. It's just, you know, we'll take it. But it was just bizarre to watch. Yeah. Did you get more followers, like more subscribers? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, we scored. But I mean, if I had known ahead of time, I would have just made the podcast about her relationship with her husband. Yes, you had the sizzle with that. But you're showing that you have substance by actually doing the homework. At least that's how I feel. I hope so. I hope people notice. I mean, it, it was just bizarre because the comparison between the pickup on that one line versus the pickup on any other aspect of our conversation, pretty dramatic. I'm always fascinated by the concept of what form of parasitic is on what other forms. In other words, like a talk show where you get on actors, you get on writers or whatever. Generally, those things are promotional tools. And that's certainly the way the guests see them and why they do them for free. They're purely parasitic on the thing that they are promoting. But, you know, with Joe Rogan or something at this point, if a comedian goes on there, it's not just like Joe Rogan is asking the comedian about their lives and to, to try to promote the comedian's stand-up. Being on Joe Rogan is so much more exposure than anything they're otherwise going to do <laughs> that it is almost as if, well, I guess you can't turn the tables and say their regular career was merely a run-up, was, it was parasitic on this Reaching, but it certainly has turned things around in a way. And, and definitely you can construct the four minute talk show segment is seemingly designed to be an advertisement for something else. The only reason you're interested in this actor and what this person has to say is because you are familiar with the big movie that so much more money was put into than this little interview here. But once you open things up, I don't know, how do you see what you're doing? Given, you know, these long, more in-depth interviews, this might be the only forum that some of these people have to be broadly philosophical as opposed to a director telling them what to do minute to minute. I feel like they really respond when they realize that that's what's going on. And, and also the attention to detail and the preparation that I've done going into the conversation. So I would say maybe using the word symbiotic more than parasitic. It's just the way of the world these days. But I think they understand pretty quickly that I'm a serious thinker and I have an inquisitive mind. And this is an opportunity to stretch out a bit and unpack some some cool stuff. And, you know, it isn't constrained by time and subject matter necessarily. So it really feels like they respond and there's sort of a magic that happens in the conversation when that really clicks. One of my favorite interviews in the last couple of years was with Quentin Tarantino and that was for KCRW and it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I, I had made a comment about how the role of radio in the movie reminded me of American Graffiti, that it was sort of this connective tissue in the 
background between scenes. And I made that comment and he didn't give an indication right away, but I could tell that he just loved that comment. And it came back around maybe 10 minutes later in the conversation that he just was like, no, it's exactly like what you said, American graffiti. And that's what I started thinking. You know, and I realized oh. like, I was like, wow, I really nailed it by just making that thoughtful observation. He just totally responded to that. And you know, that's when the kind of magic happens in a long form conversation. It may take a minute for it to reveal itself. But in the case of Tarantino, he just loved that so much. You would think there's an optimal number of times for any particular creator to be interviewed. Of course, if you're doing sort of in-depth, unexpected conversations, then they're going to be invited to think hard and say new things every time. I have to fight this on my music podcast. You know, the format is such that they're inevitably taken beyond their comfort zone. But I will prepare by listening or reading to other interviews with them. And as soon as they start to go into a story that I've heard multiple times before, because, you know, it's about their most famous song ever or whatever, then their brain has turned off. They are now engaged in promotional material. They're doing the book tour and it would be nice if the internet, I mean, this is what's bad about radio is all the good things that you were saying about it being local and live. Well, for somebody trying to promote something, that just means they have to go to like a physical book tour or something or go to all these different outlets and say basically the same stuff and answer basically the same questions. If you have a five minute interview, you're not going to have a lot of different stuff unless it's just quirky stuff. Like I always ask everybody about their underwear, whatever the token thing that'll distinguish their interview from the hundreds of others that they have given. And yeah, there are definitely musicians that I will reach out to that are just burned out that being interviewed is no longer a creative, thoughtful place. It is something that they're required to do. And it is like pushing the boulder up the hill again and again. In my process, and I'm sure you have a similar experience, but coming into an interview, I'll actually script the entire conversation, an imaginary script. Not that it needs to go exactly that way, but at least I have shaped a conversation. And sometimes the guest will answer certain questions that I had already, you know, scripted. In that point, I'll, I'll sort of scratch them. But it really helps me to essentially visualize the complete flow or maybe 75% of it. And then I'm in a position where I have that framework and I can balance that with just a good conversation. You know, ultimately, I just want a great talk that people can feel is approachable and identify with our guest and their experience. And so this process, at least for me, gives me the best opportunity to engage. But it's just a bit funny because I kind of imagine the entire conversation before I've even met the guest. So... A question I've been coming back to in my head for you is, I'm going to change it a little bit now based on what you just said, but what is it like to be a tastemaker? What makes a tastemaker? <laughs> and <laughs> so partially, I think that just sounds like, like, and that puts an enormous amount of pressure on a person. But what you're saying is you also want to come from a place that feels genuine that people can actually, well, I mean, you have to come from a place that's genuine, right? For people to actually want to identify and be like, oh, that's something in me that I wanted to understand and you just helped me understand that. So how do you, I guess, balance being a tastemaker and that moniker that somebody might give you, but also like, let's keep down to earth? It, or is that just part of what makes what you say stick? Because I can imagine with other people, if they're a tastemaker, it feels very snobby. Mm. Being a, a tastemaker, you have to have taste to start. It's sort of like having a certainty in your point of view that comes from your experience. 
like a curator in a museum. A museum exhibition may not necessarily be the end-all, be-all of an artist's work. It's a point of view that you're presenting to an audience. And so I think approaching it that way, curation, and the curation comes through that experience and your education and your passion and your interest in something over time. Also, I am naturally a critic, a skeptic. That's my first position is like every day, you know, a news item, I'll be like, really, should we be celebrating this person? You know, and then I'll sort of back down from that. (laughs) And I also don't think I'm naturally a people person. This is related to being a skeptic or a critic by nature. I'm not one of those people that's trying to go out there and have you like me all the time. I, I don't care. You know, I don't necessarily like people. I mean, yes, I like people, but mostly my family and friends. And then that's about it. You know, not the audience. I have utter contempt for all of you. <laughs> but it is having a little bit of that attitude, which can totally get you into trouble a lot. You know, I don't recommend it necessarily spouting off your first impression or your sort of critical attitude can come off as really arrogant. But in my own mind, you know, that's sort of my starting point. So I think these are some of the positions that I have found are helpful in earning that trust or that place as a tastemaker. So as a final topic, give us your expert point of view on sort of the future of radio podcasting. As you were making this jump, deciding I'm going to put some of my time, my energy, my money into this new basket. What do you think? What, what? Plant your flag. Yeah. It's just such a ever-changing field of play. I think it will be huge once they do work out a blanket music clearance for podcasts. I mean, radio is still in such a position of strength as far as guiding people and shaping people's music interests. And so I don't know that the streaming services or podcasts can do that. They're not doing it right now for me. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I just went back to cable TV. You know, I I cut my cable a few years ago and went to internet only. And then I just went back. You know, I can't believe it. So who knows? And it's also like the resurgence of vinyl. You know, all of a sudden, you know, vinyl is enjoying a heyday again. So maybe radio will be back on top. (laughs) But yeah, I still think that radio's decline is probably exaggerated. It's in a stable contraction, and I totally understand the growth and the buzz in podcasting. But to me, it's mostly about convenience and people's just endless appetite for information and entertainment in all these different forms. And it's probably going to be a slow and deliberate generational shift, you know, whereas Gen Xers like myself are still sworn to traditional radio, younger generations are like, what's that? We're all about streaming and we're all about podcasting. So maybe, you know, in the next generation, we'll be having a very different conversation, but we'll all be much older. Well, it's part and parcel of this overall just change in what pop culture is, that we used to have three channels and a very limited number of radio stations, and that is largely broken down. With that breakdown, with that centralization of just a few things that reach everybody, then you have more room for the Wild West. I still don't know how completely to make sense of this picture, but the giant entertainment corporations that have taken over every other media will take over podcasting as well. And it'll just be one among a stream of things. I'm not as confident that radio will remain sort of the most 
convenient option. You know, there's already, you know, satellite radio built into cars, which is sort of half podcasting as it is. So I feel like having a live voice to keep you company at all times, does that seem like something that podcasting can do just as well as radio? You know, people get these parasocial relationships to their favorite podcasters. I think eventually it probably can. It also really comes down to just people's habits and routines and their accessibility to something. You know, radios are still very, very accessible. But yeah, once the shift in technology is complete, I'm sure podcasting will will really reign supreme. Well, and I know Apple tried through its the iTunes store. People don't go to the iTunes store as much anymore. They don't even call it that. But, you know, because they're all using their phones, it used to be that, oh, it was a very big thing. Like the reason that my philosophy podcast got its initial burst of many, many is because we were featured on that cover of that thing. And I think those are not as frequented. Even within the podcasting realm, I'm saying that there used to be gatekeepers and now Apple has lost its monopoly. Now it's Spotify is taking more of the podcast listeners and there's a million other apps that you can get it from. And even if you do these things, you interact purely through your phone and not through their website where they can push the content that they want at you. A parallel for this whole thing is the music buying experience. Yes, there were things that the culture is thrusting on you through radio, but it, it was always a matter of your friends turn you on to something. And that's how people, when you enter college, that's how you get into new music is you hook up with people. And that seems to be how podcasts spread more as well as opposed to mass media. Well, we're also having the influence of celebrities creating playlists. And I think we might just have more of that just within podcasts. Here's my favorite thing to listen to on a regular day. You know, I know that Apple definitely does that for music. So I don't know if they do it for podcasts, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is to come, if it's not already there. And you could say as much just sort of filters or tastemakers rather than celebrities. It's sort of trusted guides, <laughs> your Sherpa. And that seems to be more important than ever, especially in this age of everything available all of the time. I mean, it feels strange for me to be nostalgic about a time when we didn't have as many choices. It feels like I'm excited to be going to the Renaissance Fair or something, but I, <laughs> I loved uh, record stores. You know, when I try and share my stories about record stores with younger generations and they're just sort of rolling their eyes. But, you know, there's something special about that physical place. You know, I'm sorry. It was awesome. You know, you would discover music. You would have real conversations with the, uh, the shopkeepers. You would take chances on vinyl that just had great album covers. And I hate to even take this position because it just makes me feel like I'm so out of touch. But I just don't see how digital media is coming close to that at all. There were some artists that I got into through record stores for alphabetical reasons. I'm always going to look for the new Steve Hackett CD and, oh, they're the Peter Hamill ones are right next to it. And so, I, <laughs> yeah. okay. I would like, my dad and I would go to, to a record shop and then we'd share our haul from the day after we left it. I, oh, I got this Aww. one. I don't know what it is. but And those are special times that really have helped to shape the person that I am. So I, I really wouldn't want it any other way. That's how I wooed my husband. He was working at a warehouse music <laughs> And he says now, he's like, I just thought you were like just as into music as I was. And I was like, because he's like, you would just come there and just listen to albums and ask me about that. I'm like, yeah. And I looked really cute doing it because I was trying to get you to call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Jason. Give us your URLs to find your stuff. Yeah. How can we follow you? Tell us. I think my favorite platform is Instagram these days. So it's um, at the Jason Bentley. I know that sounds totally douchey, but 
at the Jason Bentley. <laughs> um, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. It's a different, it's Jason underscore Bentley. But honestly, Twitter is just a one-way feed. I don't really contribute much to that conversation. But yeah, Instagram's my jam. All right. And we'll have more links for you on the blog post associated with this episode at prettymuchpop.com. And folks can look up the backstory wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot, Jason. Bye. So long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.